I'm Lauren Maxwell, and this is We're All Friends Here. Welcome to Let's Talk, a series of conversations about life's biggest questions. Today, I'm so excited to invite you to join this conversation with Abby Rosebrock, my co-conspirator in life and an all-around inspiration. Abby is a Brooklyn-based playwright, screenwriter, and actress originally from South Carolina. Her work includes the plays Blue Ridge, Dido of Idaho, Singles in Agriculture, and Different Animals. She frequently makes videos online, which you can catch on Instagram. Hi, Abby. Hi, Lauren. Hi, I'm glad you're here. I'm so happy I'm here. Thanks for having me. Obviously. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Has quarantine got you down? I wouldn't say it has me down. It has me a little crazy, but I think it's important to stay crazy. And that's such a good point. I mean, since I entered adult life, I've always felt a little crazy. Mm -hmm. I really chafe against the grind of uh, capitalist productivity, I guess. And you and me both. Yeah, I think we're all realizing that that's important and healthy that the systems we're in are so broken that. Yeah. That, that's well what's broken, them. not us. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I yeah. Think, like living in our feelings and keeping in touch with ourselves right now is really important. And often keeping in touch with yourself psychically feels a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Especially when all of the messages that we're receiving um, are that our worth is determined by our output and our productivity and our participation in these systems. Yeah, I've been taking so much time to read. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a novel reading fiend. It's probably my favorite thing to do in the world. And I'm just like, if I produced at the rate that I want to produce to make a lot of money, I wouldn't have time to engage with other people's work. Mm-hmm. And my work would be worse for it. Exactly, because you have to fill up your own cup before you really have anything of value to say, I think. And um, this pace of output is not human or sustainable for anyone. And um, And it conduces to lazy cultural production that's not healthy. Exactly. And we end up with a bunch of noise and little thoughtfulness. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've ever heard it summed up so simply and so brilliantly though, that like the solution is just to stay crazy. Like that feels doable. <laughs> yeah. I'm a lot nicer to people when I'm not beating myself up for being a freak. You're so right. And also like, why not just find the other freaks and be that way together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which brings me to the next question. Um, do you want to tell the people our friendship story? Well, we went to the same magnet school mm-hmm. for singing for a year in Greenville, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And you were this eight foot tall, striking <laughs> Amazon who was, I mean, so advanced at singing. I couldn't wrap my mind around it. It was a kind you. of thing that I hadn't been exposed to before. I remember you singing Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair Mm -hmm. in our workshop. I love the way you still talk about that. Yeah, I think of you whenever I hear it. Mm. And I don't know, somehow we just kind of hit it off eventually. And you made me laugh a lot. (laughs) 
we, you went to school, but we kept in touch and we saw each other a few times over the years, but mainly maintained contact through really long emails. We only had one year in the same place at this art school, which I think for all of us was a really, really life-changing experience. And that's one reason why the friendships that we formed there are still so meaningful and still so present in our lives. After that one year, yeah, we developed uh, this habit of letter writing. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was even a period before email of real like paper and ink letters that I loved. And I still have an envelope of them somewhere. And the envelope was decorated by you during a time when I got kind of sick in graduate school. And the envelope was decorated to look like fruit salad. Oh my God. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. And so why? (laughs) I just, because like we needed fruit salad, you know, and you just (laughs) like, you knew in the way that you do that, that was, that was exactly what would make me feel better. And it did. And you sent me, I think in the package, if I I might be mixing up packages, but you sent me these little like party straws and like stirrers (laughs) that I still have to this day. And like, the stirrers kept breaking in our drawer and I would get so angry whenever one of them broke, like to the point (laughs) John was scared to touch them because they kept breaking and he knew that those were so important to me because they were the stirrers that you gave me in graduate school in the fruit salad envelope. And, um, I remember collaging all the time. (laughs) I I was like, just completely love sick and Sylvia Plath like for a good like eight year period. And it it disturbs me that I was so dissociated that I don't remember making a fruit salad envelope. But I do I remember have to find it. for Christmas with one of our friends, Leah, and Leah saying, Lauren really wants a shaker. <laughs> and I was like, well I sh- I should get her other um drinking implements. So I got you stirs. Critically, I think we had one more year together in the same place when I moved to New York in 2017, 2018. And like the friendship was always alive and well, but I think having like, and it's not that we saw each other every day in New York, but just having that option and like taking long walks together, like going to meet for coffee on a random Friday morning was a really nice way to sort of like as adults, re-solidify things, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the other thing I was going to say about our friendship story is that, you know, Abby and I both like thinking about and talking about spiritual and metaphysical frameworks of all kinds and traditions of all kinds. And one of those is astrology. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, we're like, we just have so much astrological synergy that I think it's like, bolstered our friendship. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it's always been there, but us uh, jumping it. on the astro bandwagon has really enhanced it. <laughs> yeah. So we've always been keyed into that. And I'm just a total poser. We share the same moon sign. Mm-hmm. Cancer. My favorite sign in the Zodiac. It, yeah. Thank you. And um, if your moon sign determines like what you need to feel secure in life or whatever, your interior world um, and cancers need like belonging and acceptance. I think that we've always just, like you said, even before we realized that's what we were doing, we've always just provided that to each other on such a fundamental level. It was like, I'm going to tell you the thing that I feel most ashamed about, most angry about, most embarrassed about without even blinking, because I know that there's this fundamental um, 
open door acceptance, you know? I love that you said that because I feel like I read this Instagram post the other day about emotional dumping and how it's really unhealthy to like hoist all of your shame and your insecurity on your friends or like leak your emotional insecurities on people around you. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. You know, boundaries are important. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like, do I tell Lauren too much about my inner life? Never. (laughs) No, I... Yeah, I don't think I do. It's so wonderful to be friends with you because Listen. you really exemplify non-judgment. Oh my God. But I'm telling you, I think it has to do with our Cancer Moon twin status because I think like we've got this found like this core need and we've both experienced it in such a personal way that we can understand it in the other person. And I welcome any and all shameful inner life stories or happy inner life stories. And um yeah, that's just kind of the way I am as a anyway, but especially with you. Oh, I love it. I love when I tell you something and I'm like really ashamed about it and you just howl with laughter. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, no, it's perfect. It makes it takes the edge off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're all about reframing in this family. Right. You were talking about emotional dumping. And like, that's something I think is a really interesting discussion. Um, I don't know, maybe with a therapist of some kind or an expert of some kind, but like, where is the line between interdependency and really committed, meaningful friendship? I think in this culture, we really pathologize normal human interactions and human emotions, especially characteristically female emotions and interactions, not to be too essentialist about it. But we often write off as codependent what's really just like a natural and important pattern in human existence, like getting too intimate with someone and then realizing that you don't want to be that intimate anymore or seeing your life kind of mesh uncomfortably with someone else's life. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we can sterilize the human experience to such an extent that we pathologize every uncomfortable phenomenon. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's like things that have been sort of like methodically stamped out over time. And what I mean is feminine things that have been methodically stamped out. Maybe sometimes those things that, right, we label as codependent or label as a problem are actually just intimacy outside of the nuclear family, which should exist because you can't get everything you need from one partner. Yeah. And has always existed all over the world. Exactly. Time immemorial. I mean, I think that if you haven't um, like stalked an ex or, you know, burned some of their possessions in a trash can, you're a robot and a sociopath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you say burning belongings in a trash can because one of our like milestone experiences in this friendship was burning things that belonged to our exes? I didn't even think about that. But. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> right by the Reedy River. Right. Also, this intimacy between humans, really, but also um, maybe especially between women that we don't allow ourselves or don't have time for or don't think that. Um, we deserve or whatever it is the and getting back to the novel reading as well you know the ferrante series the quartet is like my favorite thing in the world 
Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was when I brought up boundaries. She's such a good investigator of relationships. Yeah, and I've been watching the HBO series over the past month, I guess. But I think specifically in the TV version, that intimacy is portrayed so beautifully. Yeah, I'm watching it now, actually. Yeah, and I love how in exploring that friendship between two girls, it really exposes the fallacy of authorship or creativity as an independent enterprise. Mm, I think our culture and economy and our legal institutions around intellectual property are really based on this lie that anyone can come up with a story alone. I mean, the fingerprints of everyone you've ever interacted with are on the writing that you produce. Mm -hmm. And in a world where writers aren't paid enough in the first place, of course, we're going to cling to whatever laws might give us the illusion of protection and ownership and profit. Yeah, that's true. And I I love your point about the co-creation of ideas and within writing specifically, because you know, I'm always very aware if I'm talking about something in my life, especially a difficult moment, that that is my perspective on that moment. And um, someone else's version of it would be completely different. And so I often wonder, like, yeah, what's the what's the thoughtful way um, to navigate that? Like those fingerprints that you're mentioning, um, while also having this integrity and commitment to your own version of the truth. Right. I think one of the big challenges that I faced in moving from more experimental artistic spaces to professional, more professional artistic spaces was when you're coming up as a writer, you constantly read your peers' work. You constantly contribute ideas with no expectation of credit or compensation. Um, Especially as an actor, you do that all the time. As a writer, you do that all the time. And so when you create your own product, you don't, you know, there's, there's sort of an organic karmic ecosystem of people contributing to others in good faith. And then, um, Mm. being able to come up with their own work with the contributions of others and finally getting some credit where credit is due. And then you enter like the TV industry or the film industry, or even the theater to some extent. And you realize there are these really arbitrary, Byzantine laws that people can take advantage of to make a certain amount of money or get a certain amount of credit from a piece of work that they've made some contribution to. And there's really no logic behind that system. It's just kind of something people can exploit for money and power. Exactly. Um, Or in the best case scenarios for protection. Right. And this brings us back to the issues of making art in capitalism and um, the issues of existing, I should say, in capitalism. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something you and I have talked a lot about over the past few years is like how and when and why to create for the sake of creating and joy and when to tie that to money with the caveat being that we all have to do work that pays, you know? Right. Right. 
Um, so I don't think that we necessarily have a perfect answer, but it's definitely been meaningful to explore that topic with you. Totally. I, I find our conversations on that really essential because I think artists, I've come to the conclusion through all this, that artists really need universal basic income Mm -hmm. because all of the retaliation and canceling and fighting and just this whirl of reactivity and craziness that the culture has become Mm -hmm. has to do with the fact that we live with this myth of scarcity and we're all just trying to survive. Yeah. And in the richest country on the planet, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a universal basic income for all people. But until that comes to be, and I'm not like an Andrew Yang supporter, (laughs) I'm like a rabid Bernie person, but yeah. But um, you do have a math hat in the back of your closet. A math hat? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Andrew Yang sold math hats. <laughs> Pretty sure that like while candidates typically wear the little American flag pin that he wore a math pin. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Because remember in one of the early debates, he was like, I'm Asian. I do math. He wore a math pin in place of a flag pin? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. That is so freaking awesome. Um, so about this topic of creativity, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, how has quarantine supported or inhibited your creative spark? Did you feel a difference or did it hold you back or what? No, it's like, of course, the pandemic's been extremely nerve wracking. All the industries I'm involved in are completely shut down. I'm worried for my elderly loved ones. Mm -hmm. But one thing I do appreciate is the opportunity to be a homebody with impunity. Because there's a lot of social pressure and guilt in New York about not participating in social events. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. So you're free of that. But you do have, in exchange for that freedom, you have a new little subset of worries that you didn't have before. Exactly. It sounds like you've just been kind of yeah, rolling along, like living life as usual. I'm trying to. I mean, I have always done a lot of acting and performing and not having that to balance out the like solitary writing is different. The pressure to scramble more for writing opportunities is a little higher, but everything, I mean, we're all facing such stark moral and existential questions right now that it feels unnatural and wrong to indulge my everyday anxieties too much. Mm. My individual career anxieties, I guess. Yeah. And right. I would, I think most of us are facing career anxiety on some level. So you're not alone in that a and B um, it's interesting that you talked about the existential questions (laughs) of our Mm -hmm. time and versus your own individual mindset, because I think that that's been such a theme of this year and a really important kind of awakening of consciousness for some Americans, definitely not all, but our country and the West in general is so individualistic in thought and in practice um, that we really are not going to be able to fix some of these issues unless we transition to the putting the collective first. Right. Right. So I think like through your own experience, illuminating everyone else's. 
Yeah, it's interesting to when you're not running a mile a minute to four different appointments a day, you have more time to sort of step back and observe the confusion and unconscious hypocrisies of the industry you work in. Mm -hmm. And it's just really incredible to behold the contradictions in operation right now in in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. The focus on social justice is promising and important, but there aren't enough voices calling for a deconstruction of the valuing of people by dollar amounts. Yeah. No, no. Um, Or branding as a strategy. I mean, branding is a violent dehumanizing act. And as a metaphor for the primary way in which you're supposed to market yourself, it's pretty disgusting and no one enjoys it. No one enjoys like living behind a facade. So I'm eager for more and more people to question the the underlying structures of the entertainment industry. Right. Because at the end of the day, it can't be change cannot be a a rebranding or a an announcement or a new strategy it has to be a really values level you know core deep um kind of change and that's something that we've thought a lot about in our household because classical music is an equally challenging thing to reckon with but I would love to ask you as someone who sees these truths about the entertainment industry, but also wants to continue um, building a career in that arena, what do you see as an ethical and sustainable path forward for yourself? I'm just trying to stay to name sort of ideals and values that I believe in and maintain faith that I'll find opportunities to live those out. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm fortunate enough that the two major projects I've undertaken in the last year or so have put food on my table and allowed me to do work that I believe in without engaging in practices that feel unethical or fishy to me. And I have to just keep the faith that that's possible Mm -hmm. going on. I love the way you keep saying old faith and keep the faith because that's what it's all about. I think this year, but I also think going forward forevermore, you know, like this, this isn't something that's going to be fixed overnight. And I think that that juxtaposition of continuing to work in an industry that is problematic um, and navigating, you know, as a woman too, how do I, continue to grow artistically and contribute in the ways that I feel called to while also naming and participating in healing and the need for healing. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been watching you do that and I'm so fucking proud of you, honestly. Oh my God. Thanks. I, I derive tons of inspiration from you and especially what you've done with your newsletter. Oh, thank you. If you had to summarize the one thing that has to happen right now to enact change, what would, what would it be? All I can say is what's helped me personally and strengthening my faith. Um, Hmm. And that's because the more you wake up and realize how much change needs to happen, the more you understand that 
your intuition or God or the universe or whatever has to guide, you have to let that guide you towards the work that has to be done. Mm -hmm. There's an almost infinite amount of reading and training and research and living and suffering that one has to do to come into oneself Mm -hmm. and to contribute the gifts that want to be expressed through you to the collective. Right. And surrendering to that process is really scary. Your brain is going to tell you at literally every juncture that you're not capable, mm-hmm. that you're not have safe. To trust, yeah. You have to trust the old systems to make you money. You have to trust the old systems to sustain you yeah. when that's been proven you know, it's been proven over and over again that our culture's values are poisoned to their core. And so you have to have some faith that the unglamorous work you're doing every day, even when you don't even quite know what you're doing it for, like sometimes I'll just have this feeling that I need to read a book or I need to read all of an author's work without quite knowing why. And I have to approach that undertaking with a lot of prayer because it's not paid work. I don't know how it's going to show up in my writing Mm -hmm. or whether it's going to show up in my writing. And I don't know how to explain it to my boyfriend, for example, as part of the work that I'm called to do here on this planet, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, and you know, you, you have to use strategies like prayer or meditation or, or like meditative and neurological strategies to enter into painful and dangerous conversations with power. Mm -hmm. That's fucking terrifying when you're at odds with it, when you are a young artist with no money and you are at odds with a power structure that's telling you to do wrong. And you have a team of people counting on you to do your work. What do you do in that situation? Except try to live out your values and have faith that you'll end up on your feet somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love how you keep going back to faith and sort of like the spiritual imperative to make these changes in the world, these, um, these really deep rooted changes. But I've been so deeply inspired by the spiritual underpinnings of the civil rights movement this summer Mm -hmm. and, you know, did a lot of reading and watching and things like that. And it was in, a John Lewis interview, John Lewis and Krista Tippett. John Lewis addressed these themes so elegantly, you know, in his way. And at one point in that interview, he says that they trained, you know, as if they were preparing for battle, they trained with discipline and commitment to be able to recognize the divine spark in every human being. And I think that's really what it comes down to, because if you recognize that divine spark, no matter what you want to call it, then you're going to do everything in your power to protect it both in yourself and in someone else. Right. One of the great surprises, and I mean, this has been a truly glorious gift in my adult life. A major fear that I grew up with was that I was raised evangelical and I always knew that my friends who weren't Christians were no more, were not wrong. Like I could sense I was inundated with popular culture through television and I didn't feel like people who didn't believe in God were necessarily wrong. But I also 
loved my church. I mean, fortunately I went to a pretty like progressive mainline Protestant church, which is definitely not the case for a lot of people. Yeah. You came out of um, the whole evangelical scene pretty unscathed. Well, uh, sex is another story, but like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like in terms of tolerating people with different beliefs, we definitely were encouraged to like explore other faiths. And there's a large Jewish community in Charleston. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, I didn't, there wasn't the kind of fire and brimstone around saving people by teaching them the gospel. Right. Or you have to save your Catholic neighbor or that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that stayed with me, but I still also had this fear that like, there would be no reconciliation between the God people in my life and the non-God people in my life. Mm. One of my best friends was an atheist for most of our, our childhood and always just sort of like, made me sad or scared in some way that this person who was as important to me as family members would never see eye to eye on this deep existential question as to whether there is a God. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, I grew up and I was reading, you know, Buddhist and Islamic texts in college that I found, you know, there was all the synchronicity with those and with the gospel that I grew up with. And to me, like, I, I know that religious difference and religious distinctions play a huge role in people's lives sometimes mm-hmm. materially. But the more I read and learn, the more I think that the cliche that we're all sort of like going after the same thing is very real. And I've been reading a lot of Baldwin recently. Mm-hmm. I think it was his birthday yesterday. Mm-hmm. There's so much... Like the um, his interest in the nation of Islam and his explanations of the Christian church and the white church and the black church, like there's so much fertile ground in all of these traditions for mm-hmm. moving forward and imagining and building a new world. Mm-hmm. And I think we can collectively like let go of the myth that religious faith should be an obstacle to progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for a lightning round? Yeah, I think. I get really tongue-tied, but let's do it. Let's tie that tongue. (laughs) (laughs) What? Okay, wait. First, tell everyone about your number one companion during quarantine, and I mean your dog. Can you hear him in the background right now? He's playing with an antler. No, but I wish I could. (laughs) So about a year ago, I gave birth to a... (laughs) Boxer, Beagle, Shepherd, Pitbull mix. That is the most Juno. Cancer Moon thing you've ever said, which is <laughs> saying a lot. He came straight out of my womb. Um, <laughs> and he snuggles with me. He's pretty much there for every word that I write. He, his like emotional intelligence is incredible to behold. Oh, dogs. Okay. What is your quarantine diet like? Anything out of the ordinary? Just, no, actually. Tons of dark chocolate. Yeah. Unhealthy Critical. amount of coffee. That's something I need to work on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Cinnam- I'm not really... Cinnamon Girl or no? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh. Shout out to Cinnamon Girl. We love That's you, Cinnamon Girl. Okay, this is going to be a hard question, but best book you've read during quarantine? Ah! <laughs> That's so hard. Okay, okay, okay. I'll change it. Most recent book you've read during quarantine? 
Well, I think there's a tie. Okay. No, three, three-way tie. We love, we love a tie. Um, Baldwin, Giovanni's Room. I think the pinnacle of the like American expat in Europe genre. Another amazing exploration of the, the psyche and love is Elena Ferrante again. <laughs> Days of Abandonment. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Earth shattering. And I know it makes me a cliche. I also know I'm two years late coming to it, but I think that my year of rest and relaxation is incredible. Yeah, my year of rest and relaxation I also loved. And the cover was fantastic. Yeah, it's really good. I hope it doesn't deter men from reading it. When I write a novel, I want a really manly cover. <laughs> I want like like homoerotic lumberjacks like punching each other in the woods. <laughs> I was imagining like a supremely regal portrait of Juno, but that works too. That would be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great cover idea. Okay, favorite female singer of all time? Joni. I knew! <laughs> born with a moon in cancer i'm gonna put gillian welch in in the closest possible second and i'm only oh. giving Joni priority be, because she's older <sighs> yeah and depending on who i'm talking to i call Joni the pa- patron saint of cancer moons and the patron saint of enneagram four so in our case patron saint of everything right she should be the great archetype of an artist, yeah. especially a, someone who creates and performs their own work. Oh, and like the only thing that makes me feel better about the haircut I had in third grade is that <laughs> it kind of resembles Joni Mitchell Banks. That's amazing. Why wouldn't you like that haircut? Well, I had too many bangs. It was like the whole front of my head, ha- the whole front half of my head was all bang. So then when I tried to grow them out, in middle school, it was really traumatic and involved a lot of like poofing and hairspray and headbands. Um, <laughs> but for a moment, it was almost Joni. If you took off like the weird part over my ears that shouldn't have been there, Joni all the way. That sounds amazing. Oh my God. If I want to feel good, um, I would say the fastest path to that is like rolling my windows or sunroof down and like blasting blue and I love it all but for some reason I get particularly excited when we get to Carrie because it's just like the most fun song to sing along to oh it's such a I feel like California is fun to sing to as well it is it is but there's something about that just like gets me I mean it all gets me but about the freaks geeks soldiers and these friends of mine and then the devil who keeps me in this tourist town I'm just like I just can't like I'm I I explode every time my brilliant friend at work again (laughs) um that's what I call you that's what I call Abby people um yes it's a Ferrante reference but it's also true okay we're gonna go Abby I'm so happy to spend this afternoon with you I'm so happy to spend this life with you and I love you (laughs) I love you so much I'm so honored that you had me on I can't wait to put this on my website Thank you so much for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to We're All Friends Here. You'll get an email once a week on Saturday mornings with an essay or a conversation about the struggle and the beauty of being alive. Take care out there and I'll see you next time.